Hi, I'm Paul Havershoud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Death is not the end. So the old spiritual maxim goes. And that is also a scientific fact. Well, wouldn't it be nice if that uh, oak tree, which uh, they have uh, deep tap roots, would ever reach my remains and uh, the tree would take nourishment. And it's kind of like, well, I never died, really. (laughs) Death is a part of life and it's all around us. We are fascinated with death in popular culture, and yet we tend to shield ourselves from seeing it at work in our world. On this episode of Ideas, Suzuki's survival guide takes us into the process of death. What happens to our bodies after we die? The amount of decay that you have in one week on land takes two weeks if you're in water, takes eight weeks if you're buried how our bodies need death in order to live. The cells within our bodies are continually growing, renewing themselves, and they're dying. And the dying is not just because the life can't go on, but the dying is is in many cases uh, coordinated to be part of the life on the bigger scale. And how we as organisms derive the life force from the world around us, specifically, What happens to a carrot from the garden to our mouths to the other end? Originally broadcast in 2010 as part of the series, The Bottom Line, this is Life and Death, The Cycle, with David Suzuki. It's something we don't like to dwell on as the years tick by and birthdays come and go. The thought that Every moment ticking by brings us one moment closer to the inevitable, death. I'm not one for birthday celebrations. Now that I'm 74 and there's no denying the fact that I'm in the death zone, so I want to focus on a few things I'd like to accomplish before death catches up with me. I'd like to learn to speak French fluently, do some wood carving and study some geology, But mainly, I want to revel in the activities of my grandchildren. And that's about it until the end. But here's the good news. Death is integral to life. To start us off on this journey, I'd like to introduce you to Joan Graham. She's 81 years old and lives on a farm in Metamora, just north of Detroit, Michigan. Her dream is to be buried on her property, which is lush with life, and she hopes that she can offer part of her land to others interested in natural burials. You know, you can look out just about any time and see deer out here, and and then um, I like that the fox 
make uh, have a certain bark that I'm familiar with, and I hear them, and the seasons change. And uh, another favorite activity of mine is planting trees. And that's another way I th I'm thinking of, like, prolonging my life beyond death, is trees. And I figure um, somebody's going to appreciate them. That tree there, uh, that's where a silo was. And I think that that really, that tree has been very healthy because it is growing out of the um, organic decomposition of all of the stuff that was in that silo over the years. And I think that that's why it was so healthy. And it just um, holds a multitude of birds in the evening. And you've seen them flying out of there in the morning. And, uh, and then I'll show you where the green burial will be, which is on the other side of that woodlot. We could probably bury bodies in the woods too, but I think that this is a wonderful site for it, and uh, it's too rolling for the farmer to use it for cropland. I think that um, this is going to be the end of the chapter. <laughs> no, I would not want to be anywhere else. I think it's a perfect place for a burial. It's quiet and secluded. And there won't be any uh, monuments in here. There'll just be a tree maybe, or maybe somebody would like to put a rock by their site. But it would just be like this. Uh, you, it, it, everything would be flush with the ground. It would be natural. And hopefully the, the deer enjoy it. You know, and during the fly season, they like an open place like this for the wind to blow the flies off of them. Well, I suppose you would say that you could call it meditation point, place to come up and be quiet and think about the past and the future and... Uh, and I don't know, I just, I'm not a very religious person, but I like to come up here and just say that nobody created it better than you, God. And I don't know, I guess it uh, makes um, the thought of death more like going to sleep and rest. And I find it restful. You know, I just like to look for a great big attractive pretty rock now put it up here in a oak tree and I don't have any um, anxiety or any or any feeling about dreading death and uh, I, I'm not, I don't know uh, the depth of uh, the burial with it but I think well wouldn't it be nice if that uh, oak tree, which uh, they have uh, deep tap roots, would ever reach my remains, and uh, the tree would take nourishment. And it's kind of like, well, I never died, really. <laughs> that was Joan Graham in Metamora, Michigan.
Whether we like to think of it or not, the fact is, when we die, our bodies decompose, supporting a flush of life through the decay process. Few are as familiar with this as William Bass. My name is uh, Dr. William Bass. I'm a professor emeritus from the anthropology department at the University of Tennessee. One of the things that most people know that I have done in the past is create a research facility at the University of Tennessee uh, called the Body Farm. Uh, it's a research facility in which we study uh, the length of time since death and what the complications are, uh, are in trying to determine the length of time. The Body Farm is just outside Knoxville, Tennessee, and covers about three acres. People can donate their bodies to the farm, and scientists then study them as they slowly deteriorate, exposed on the ground to the elements. We normally don't leave a body out there more than a year, because what happens is you want to let nature help you as much as you can, but if you leave it out there too long, then the bones begin to flake from, from the sunlight and things like that. And so we normally leave them out there a year. We've left, the, we've got about a two-year batch out there. There are about 150 bodies out there right now. Yes, you heard him. They have about 150 human bodies on the premises in various states of decay. If you can get beyond the ick instinct, there's a lot to learn from the activities in and around our bodies after we die. There are essentially four stages of decay. The first is fresh, right after a body dies. It's in the fresh stage. Then you go to uh, the bloat stage. Uh, this is where the bacteria in the body begins to increase, and uh, you have a buildup of gases causing a bloating effect of the body. Uh, then you go through the decay stage. Uh, this is where the body is rapidly breaking down. Uh, in many cases, if there are insects or animals present, they will be involved during this stage. And then you finally have the dry stage uh, at which uh, the rapid activity of reducing a body from its present size down to the minimum, which would be teeth and bones, occur. All of these stages vary depending on climate and how the body is covered. I warn listeners that some of you might find some of this disturbing. There's a rule of thumb, by the way, on length of time since death, in that the amount of decay that you have in one week on land takes two weeks if you're in water, takes eight weeks if you're buried. Really? So, yes. So, uh, you, essentially what you're doing if you bury a body, if you bury it deep enough, of course, you, um, you are getting it into a refrigerated type uh, environment. You, you're essentially a slowing down all the processes. So let's start with, you're interested in the second stage uh, after a day. Could you kind of describe uh, in, in more detail each of the four stages? Sure. <clears throat> the fresh stage, of course, is right after death. It's the, the cooling of the body. It's the changes of, uh, of some of the fluids like in the eye and so forth. Um, it is a period in which the body is giving off smells. And these smells, the first of the critters to be attracted to the smells are the blowflies. These are the green and blue iridescent flies 
They're different species from houseflies that are attracted to decaying bodies. And they will uh, lay their eggs. They seek the moist orifices of the body, the eyes, the nose, the mouth. This stage lasts about, well, let's say an average body uh, just lying on the ground. Those flies would be there in a day or two, I assume, and then the maggots hatch out and start uh, penetrating the body. That's that's correct. <clears throat> there are studies, by the way, that have indicated that in the process of dying, as you approach death, you're giving off smells uh, that will attract some individuals, I, animals, I should say, uh, and there are well-documented examples of blowflies being attracted to bodies while the individual was still alive. Uh, recently, there's been a study of a cat in one of the uh, nursing homes who uh, arrives in a room where somebody is about to die. And so even the cat recognizes, I would assume, the smells that are being given off by the body. Hmm. So these are all, this is the first phase then, is when the, uh, the insects get at, uh, get at the body wherever they can, and then uh, carry on. That's right. Now, what they do, um, the blowflies will lay their eggs. The eggs hatch into maggots. There are some of the insects, some of the flies that will lay live larvae, uh, but normally the, the first one to be attracted to dead bodies are the blowflies. And they're universal. They're all over the world. And then the maggots begin the active process of destroying the decaying tissue. They are literally nature's little um, assistance in reducing a carcass from its uh, normal size down to the minimum amount you can have, which would be bones and teeth. In British Columbia, um, we have uh, these massive runs of salmon, and when you go to, to view this, the carcasses on the, uh, that the bears bring up on the beach are become, within days, seething masses of, of maggots, which are reducing that that meat, basically, uh, back into stuff returned to the soil. So I guess it's a similar process. That's true. What you're doing at the body farm is replacing the salmon with real humans, you see. So we're we're, we're looking at the same process there. So what happens in the bloated stage, then? The bloated stage is that uh, as the body is decaying, not only are the maggots beginning to eat on the body, but uh, the cells themselves are breaking down and so you have the bacteria being built up from uh, the enzymes that are eating away on some of the internal organs. And this creates gas. And uh, if you don't have a hole in the body, like a stab wound or a gunshot wound for that gas to get out, then the body begins to, to bloat like a balloon. And uh, this causes uh, fluids to be forced out of the mouth and other openings in the body. And so you have a, this is a very foul-smelling stage of the body. Now, are those bacteria that are proliferating from our own internal organs, or are they coming in from outside? No, these are from our own internal organs breaking down, yeah. This is the... uh, So the material in our intestines will begin to be liberated and and basically consume the body then. Exactly. This is why, uh, certainly in Canada, you have people who go out and hunt uh, deer or, uh, you know, things like that. And they will field dress the animal. This means that they will take the intestines out. 
uh, because this is where the major uh, buildup of of uh, gases are occurring. So then you go from that stage, the the body is being broken down actively by maggots as well as ba- bacteria. As animals, uh, bacteria, and then uh, if you're outside, most of the canids, the dogs, the coyotes, we get skunks and raccoons, all of these rats, they will all are predators on a decaying carcass. And uh, so you will get the animals coming in, and this is where you get scattering. If you are, again, looking at it from a, a law enforcement perspective, uh, the body is all together. Uh, but once this bloat stage has occurred, you've got the maggots eating on the soft tissue. Uh, the dogs are really interested because it smells good, and uh, they're coming and they're pulling off parts of the body, certainly the, the arms and the legs and, and parts like that. So that's where you begin to get the scatter of a, of a decaying body. Now, do different animals have a preference for different parts of the body? Yes, they do. We've done a little research on that. We did, uh, we've done a couple of uh, publications in the, in the literature in, uh, and uh, took some pictures a couple of years ago. Uh, these are usually night feeders. And we have a really interesting picture of one of the bodies in the body farm uh, decaying away. And we have raccoons, uh, we have possums, and we have rats all eating on the same body at the same time. Hmm. Now, the, the interesting thing is they don't eat together. Uh, if you've heard birds of a feather flock together, well, you know, uh, the raccoons would want to eat with the raccoons and the possums with the possums and the, the rats over here. But you have all three of them eating on the same body at the same time, but not in the same location on the body. Hmm. So what do they go for? I mean, why are they eating well, different? Uh, well, they go for different. I'm not sure. We, we really don't know that much about this now. Uh, but some of them are interested in the internal organs, for example, the breakdown of the lungs and the uh, the intestines and things like this. Uh, the the rats are more interested in getting down to the bone. Uh, the dogs are interested also, not necessarily in in the meat. They want what they're trying to get to is the marrow in the bone. So when you've defleshed the body, would be the term I reckon I would use. If when you've defleshed the body, that the bones are there, then the the dogs and the coyotes, the bears. Uh, all of these critters are interested in the bones, and they will eat the ends of the bone. Hmm. They'll eat what's called the proximal and distal end, leaving the shaft of the bone. And the reason for this is that the marrow occurs in the ends of the bone. Hmm. So then we go from the active state decay to the dry stage. To the dry stage. And what you get then is uh, the, the maggots have left, the coyotes have left, uh, the dogs... Then you will get those individuals that are interested in the dry, dry bone. By the way, one of the animals interested in, in dry bones are squirrels. Squirrels really? are not in. Yeah, they're not interested in, fre- in fresh. I mean, if you, if you kill your buddy and set, set his bone out there, they're not going to do that. But you keep that bone two years, and then they're interested in, in the calcium and things that are in the bone, and so they'll start chewing on that. Wow, we think of squirrels as as herbivores that they eat plants. Yeah, well, they <laughs> they have a dessert of humans occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know the way you've described it. Although a body is dead, 
it sounds to me there's almost as much living material inside that body as there, there was living material when it was alive. We, oh, there's, there's all kinds of <laughs> yeah. So you could say, in fact, that it's teeming with life. It's interesting because here uh, forestry is a big issue in my part of the world, and uh, a dead wow. tree lying on the forest floor actually has more weight of living material than uh, it does when it's actually alive and standing. And that's because a tree basically has got a, just a thin layer of living material around un, just under the bark, and the rest of it is dead okay. anyway. But then once it's dead, it's entered by bacteria and fungi and insects and all kinds that's of things. That's right. You, it's lying on the ground where all these things can get to it, and I, I can understand that, yes. But, you know... In our society, when you begin to talk about death, people get very uncomfortable. I'm, what is it about our society that has kind of wanted to push death aside somehow and, and not confront it? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll tell you, that's why people are interested. You know, if, if somebody is killed out on the, on the, on the road, uh, you don't drive by and see the bodies lying out there. The police have come along, they hold up a sheet or they hold up a, a tarp or something like that. And they cover that body up, and then they, uh, the medical examiner comes and he puts you in a black disaster bag, and they take you to the, to the mortuary, to the funeral home, and the funeral home doesn't let you into the processing lab. If you ever see that individual again, it's in an open casket, and then he is that's closed and he's buried. And so we simply have never looked at that whole process from the time of death to the time you're buried. And uh, a lot of things people want to know about that. We are much more secretive in that, I think, than many other cultures. Mm -hmm. You know, as a biologist, I look at at death as a part of the cycle of life, and there's something about the way in nature everything is constantly recycled back and forth. There's a, a certain beauty or elegance to the way, in fact, this whole process is interconnected. Do you see it that way in, as well? There's a, a kind of beauty in this cycle of death and life. Well, I have. Let me tell you, I've lost two wives to cancer, and uh, I hate death. I hate mourning. Uh, I just I don't like that whole scene. But it's interesting what your mind can do for you. I never see a forensic case as a dead body. I see it as a challenge of whether I can identify that individual and find out what happened to them. So uh, I look at it more from the scientific point of view than I do from maybe the religious or the ascetic uh, view. But I can understand what you're saying, yes. I mean, it's a, it, it's a cycle, and it's a cycle that all of us are going to go through eventually. Uh, so, uh, You and me, we're all going to be part of that. Unfortunately. I, well, <laughs> my, so I, you know, death is necessary for life to, it, to exist and persist and flourish. Uh, That's when, true. My, my great hero was my father, who was 85 when he was dying, and I moved in to live with him the last month of his life. And he was totally unafraid of death. He was prepared for it. But he, he wrote his obituary with me, and in it he said that when he dies, he, his ashes were going to be uh, cast into the wind off his favorite island. And he said, when you see the flash of the salmon in the ocean or hear the sigh of the wind through the trees, you'll know I'm there. And I, Well, that... That's great. I, that's the way it is. I mean, we re yeah, it is. We return yeah. back to nature that gave us birth. That's true. Bill, thank you very much for sharing this absolutely fascinating story with me. Thank you for having me on your program. Goodbye. Bye bye.
William Bass is Professor Emeritus of Forensic Anthropology at the University of Tennessee. Hi, I'm Jan Arden, and you're listening to The Bottom Line with David Suzuki on CBC Radio 1. I care about our environment because it is a matter of survival. Nature is very patient, but if we test her limits, she could easily tire of us. All too often, we get caught up in the day-to-day grind and forget about the big picture. Step back for a second. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we grow from the earth. We're all connected to our planet. We've got to keep it healthy to keep us healthy. That, for me, is the bottom line. On Ideas, you're listening to Suzuki's Survival Guide, a retrospective. This program was originally broadcast in 2010. We're a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. We heard the fascinating, perhaps cringe-inducing, description of how our bodies get pulled apart by critters after we die. But even when we're alive, our bodies are rampant with cycles of death. My name is Tyler Volk. I'm professor of biology and environmental studies at New York University and science director of of the Environmental Studies Program at New York University. Tyler Volk is also author of a number of books, including one he co-wrote with Dorian Sagan called Death and Sex. Death is completely integral uh, to who we are. If you start walking down the street and you think of yourself as this uh, great a mountain or great city uh, of life, it's, it's simultaneously a, a great living orchestrated city uh, of death. And so we are these walking beings that are who we are because of the, uh, because of the control and, and use of death uh, inside our bodies. The cells within our bodies are continually growing, renewing themselves, and they're dying. And the dying is not just because the life can't go on, but the dying is, is in many cases, uh, coordinated to be part of the life on the bigger scale. In our immune systems, the the white blood cells of our immune systems, uh, they will die, uh, whether they hook up with the bad agents that they are seeking for or not. Uh, They have limited uh, lifespans, and this is also uh, a kind of death that is very, very controlled. These cells undergo a programmed cell suicide in which they disintegrate and make themselves recyclable for the rest of the body. The most visible form of death on our bodies is in our skin, which is our body's largest organ. The surface of our skin is constantly renewed. 
Uh, the skin cells have a lifetime typically of about one month. Uh, they, they are born in the deeper layers of the skin and they migrate out to the surface in which they are uh, you know, either sloughed off, exposed, abraded off, but after a while they're going to die and fall off anyway. Uh, that makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary or functional perspective in, in terms of the border of an organism being something that needs to uh, renew itself a lot, and, and the skin is a good example of it. Uh, and so there's different different techniques that our bodies use to turn death into a truly creative force for life on this larger scale that we call ourselves. Mm -hmm. So what would happen if if death didn't occur? Well, I guess we wouldn't be possible without death. Yeah, we wouldn't be possible without death. They they do experiments uh, in the laboratory with uh, with simpler creatures and they remove some of the uh, genes that are important for creating this uh, sort of program cell death and and these during uh, development of the of the of uh, the embryos, and uh, and these creatures die. They they just they, they they really can't go on. Absolutely fascinating. I did not know about that work about the uh, actual isolation of genes. D- d- are they programmed to go off at a certain time in development or in certain tissues? Uh, I mean, that must vary from uh, organ to organ. It's it's yes uh, yes, David. It's looking like all the cells have the potential to go into these suicide programs. It, one of the uses of this is the fact that when cells get aberrant, if they start replicating uh, in in ways that are wrong, uh, they can go into the, the these suicide programs can be triggered either internally. Uh, to the cells or through external signals to the cells to tell themselves to die. Um, our, our, our brains are born, we're born with about twice the number of neurons that we will eventually have, not because of senescence and old age, but even as, uh, even as young children, uh, many brain cells that existed in the, uh, in, in the embryo are going to, or in the fetus, are going to die off when they don't make the proper connections. And it turns out in the brain cells that they have to make connections to get the signals to tell them not to die, otherwise they go into these, into these suicide programs. So this controlled programmed cell death is used to wire our brains up in in the way that we need. Wow, that's amazing. So there must be lots of examples like in other life forms as well in which this kind of uh, uh, death is essential for the development of an organism. One of my favorite examples is in the trees that we see all around us, walking in the woods, uh, flying over. So important, this, this wonderful green carpet all over the planet. Uh, the trees are able to reach the sky uh, not because of the living cells so much, but because of the dead cells that are created as the tree grows. Uh, uh, The the bark, of course, consists of dead cells, and that protects the tree just in the way our skin protects our bodies. But my favorite example within the tree itself, which is full of all kinds of useful death, has to do with the uh, tubes called the xylem that bring the water up from the roots, not just the water, but the nutrients up from the roots. And these tubes that bring the liquid nutrients up to the leaves, these tubes are made from dead cells. So the cells inside the tree elongate and they form these xylem tubes and they die back. And so these tubes are remnants of life, but they're not just leftover parts of life. They're an active 
part of the totality we call the living tree. And all the vascular plants out there, all the flowers, all the uh, bushes, the, the herbs, they all have these xylem tubes in them to bring the water and the mineral nutrients up from the soil to their leaves. And uh, those tubes are all death used in the service of life right in the, right in the present moment. Right, and of course, the the one we're very familiar with is the leaves of the deciduous trees. Every uh, every fall, are going to turn color and die and drop off. So that's again another uh, evolutionary mechanism for the tree to get through the winter. Yeah, and the, the the beautiful adaptation there is that these leaves in the fall don't merely drop off because winter's coming and uh, they get they get ripped down. If you observe one, if you pick one up in the fall, you can see it's got a tiny little design, a little sealed off surface, and so the point where it breaks off uh, is is actually a zone of cells that was alive during the summer that dies before falling off. And so it's all done incredibly neatly, <laughs> completely as part of the, the adaptation of the tree to not have the leaf just ripped off because a winter's coming, right. but, to, but to cleanly break away. Right, right. Hi, this is Rafi. And, you know, I'm here to say that nature is our true bottom line that allows us to do everything that we love on this big, beautiful planet. Let's create a world that honors children and belugas and all that we hold precious. So, listen to the bottom line. I'm David Suzuki in conversation with Tyler Volk, director of the Environmental Studies Program at New York University. I asked him what happens to our bodies buried under the earth. I assume you're you're thinking they're not uh, embalmed permanently into giant pyramids to try to prevent the <laughs> <laughs> the natural agents from getting at them. Uh, but it seems like most things, uh, most ways, they're going to be buried. We're going to be buried one way or another. Uh, eventually, the microbes are going to get at us. Uh, the, the famous scene in Hamlet of the grave. Uh, digger picking up Yorick's skull and there's there's not much flesh left and so what happens to us is that uh, the creatures in the soil uh, feed on us we are delicious organic matter to many things in the soil uh, the microbes are going to be the most uh, industrious agents down there even though the worms and other critters uh, look larger the, it's, it's the the smallest ones that are the most numerous that are going to uh, either get out of our bodies the quickest or get into the cracks of coffins and uh, eventually uh, decompose us and they will t- turn us into first their bodies uh, but because the creatures that feed on us are like us uh, creators of carbon dioxide from eating organic carbon compounds, these microbes in the soil uh, create carbon dioxide uh, just like we do, particularly the ones that are going to be feeding on us. And that carbon dioxide gas, our bodies are going to be turned into, uh, for the most part, carbon dioxide gas, will be released by these various creatures in the soil and in the pores of the soil's air. This carbon dioxide gas will waft up into the atmosphere it goes up into the atmosphere because all the organisms in the soil uh, that that are uh, creating carbon dioxide make the make the concentration of carbon dioxide much higher in the soil than it is in the atmosphere. And so this carbon dioxide is, in a sense, 
pushed out by by gas pressure from the soil up into the atmosphere, and so we're going to end up in the atmosphere. And we're going to end up then being breathed in by plants, which need that carbon to make their bodies and macromolecules. My dad was right. My dad wrote in his own obituary that uh, when he dies, he's going to return to nature. And he said, when you hear the the sigh of the wind through the trees, David, you'll know I'm there. He was right. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yes. Yes. So we are, in fact, through the microbial action in the soil, or I suppose if we're cremated, we'll go bang directly from being this solid body into into gas of carbon dioxide. Right. If we're cremated and it's efficient, it's it's going to go right into the atmosphere. So uh, descendants can, uh, I guess, uh, you know, f- breathe us in or see us in the atmosphere uh, right away. And in, in in that regard, if we're if we're buried, it's gonna we're gonna leak out into the air over longer periods of time. And so we become part of the atmosphere. We 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 in in a sense. Uh, return to this global, our, our, the, the, our, <laughs> what's the we, but our, our atoms re- return to this uh, global scale of encircling the entire earth. Uh, the, and it's return to we, what we began as in the sense that we're taking these atoms from the atmosphere via plants that took that really were the skilled organisms that can take the carbon as carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, as you mentioned, and and then we eat the plants or eat the animals that eat the plants. And so we are, while we live, uh, temporary whirlpools, temporary, very complex systems of these of these atoms that were once widely distributed over the entire Earth's uh, atmosphere and over other parts of the Earth as well. We take them in and then return them when when we die. But does that mean then that we are made up of carbon atoms that were once in the bodies of Joan of Arc and Jesus Christ, maybe, that had been recycled the same way? Uh, yeah, definitely. Wow. So uh, reincarnation, then, is just a, a, part, a true part of the biological... Well, I mean, we won't come back as Tyler Volk or David Suzuki, but uh, parts of us are just recycled over and over. Yeah, what, what are called the biogeochemical cycles of carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus, the teachings that the scientists have gained from studying these biogeochemical cycles are that uh, these atoms come into these uh, temporary concentrated forms uh, called called life that, that then pass on their genes and think and have radio shows and answer uh, answer questions, uh, then they will disperse back. So there's this continual uh, condensation and an expansion of these atoms, and therefore the smallest units of the living biosphere are, are, are both taking from and becoming again uh, the, the whole the whole atmosphere ocean soil system uh, it, it can be a little bit uh, mind-boggling but that's what the study of the science of the carbon cycle is is telling us but I think that's uplifting and inspiring then because it it says as part of that cycle basically we're just we're connected not only from the past into the present and future but we're connected to everything else around the planet through these cycles and the fact that our bodies are constantly uh, being replenished and giving off these these various atoms. Yes, David, we're, we're completely connected to the whole. We we are both 
both part and whole uh, simultaneously. Right. So we are created from the ashes of other carcasses of plants and animals, and we become a part of them as we go off yes. to the other world. Wow, a lot to digest from that conversation with Tyler Volk. What it comes down to is that interconnectedness. Think about it for a second. The atoms that make up your body have traces of people and animals and plants that have long died. It's like we're just vessels for the ongoing survival of the atoms. And just as creatures in the soil feed on us, Humans have evolved because of our ability to feed on creatures of the earth and sea. They are delicious organic matter to us. My name is John Hughes and I'm a professor of family medicine at McGill University. Dr. Hughes is going to track a carrot from its life in the veggie patch as it travels through our bodies and out the other end. You have a carrot sitting there with a leaf, and the leaf has these little pores in it into which enter the atmospheric gases that we breathe. And some of those are carbon dioxide, and through the miracle of photosynthesis, a photon of sunlight comes down and kaboom, that carbon dioxide gets broken apart into an oxygen molecule and a spare carbon part, which is then attached to another spare carbon part, which is attached to another, to another, to another. And first thing you know, you have a chain of carbons, which we would label as a carbohydrate, or in this case, fructose, which is fruit sugar. So we've pulled a great big juicy carrot out of the earth, shaken off the dirt, and we're eyeing it with the anticipation of enjoying that crunchy sweetness. Our bodies kick into gear even at the thought of eating. We start to salivate. Our intestines begin to move in anticipation, and we take a bite. And we have cutters, shredders, and grinders. And our teeth go to work. And uh, in actuality, the digestion process begins there because whatever's going in, if it's a solid, has to be uh, cracked open, as it were, into small enough units that the initial digestive enzymes, which are present in saliva, are able to, how shall I say, distribute through the material as effectively as possible to speed up the process of digesting the molecules. So all this grinding and shredding helps crack open those sweet-tasting molecules of fruit sugar. Well, the fructose is an easy one because, so it's been, it's been sitting inside a little, uh, say, storage bin inside one of the cells in the root of the carrot. We've sliced open the root of the carrot with our teeth and then we've crushed it with our molars into a, a puree. So once it's, it's all been, as they say, masticated in the mouth, then it's propelled down the esophagus, which is essentially a free fall into the stomach, where it joins up with a whole bunch of other digestive enzymes, including stomach acid, technically not an enzyme, but participates in the process. And the stomach is a mixing bag, not unlike a wineskin, except it's got a valve at the top and a valve at the bottom. Once you've swallowed something, those two valves are supposed to remain closed, and the stomach contracts and squishes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and the little sensors in the wall of the stomach 
tell the control centers in the gastrointestinal tract and brain through a very complex set of wiring that the stuff is ready to be absorbed. In other words, it's been the nutrients or the products have been broken down sufficiently and are in, in the right molecular format that when they encounter the absorptive surfaces that they meet in the small intestine, that the, the actual individual nutrients are able to cross this very, very selective membrane that lines our intestinal system. The small intestine is one of the key organs in our digestive system that allows the body to absorb all those good nutrients that made their way from the earth into the food and into us. That material, as it passes into the small intestine, uh, is essentially at uh, the parts that we're going to absorb are essentially down to the molecular level and encounter the cells that make up the lining of the membrane of the intestine. These cells have various receptor sites and little portholes and, and little, uh, they're not unlike airlocks on, on uh, the Starship Enterprise where you can enter into this little chamber and then the chamber outside of the chamber closes and the inside of the chamber opens up on the inside of the cell and then the fructose molecule which really in its, as, as itself can essentially be, be transported across the membrane because it's such a simple molecule. And then it's inside the cell that lines the, uh, the membrane of the intestine. And the journey continues. Once it's there, it then is in very close proximity to um, a, a small vein, which is the uh, part of the circulatory system, and can migrate across from that cell through some inter swim through some interstitial water hit the wall of the venule, or actually it's a capillary at that point, again pass across that membrane into the blood flow that is flowing down that small pipe. The liver is where a lot of the action is. It's in the liver that that chemical energy is then transformed into another type of chemical energy, middled by another molecule, and that product per se can be directly used by, say, a muscle to uh, cause a contraction, which could cause a movement to throw a ball. Ta-da! The energy from the carrot turns into energy our bodies use to thrive. Those nutrients are used by all the cells and organs of the body, not the least of them, of course, our brains. There's also a few leftovers that we end up pooping out. Whatever nutrients have failed to be absorbed are, are left over, and those, those leftover nutrients can, can sometimes be the nutrient supply for various bacteria that inhabit the bowel and can be responsible for gas production and things like that. And the material starts to be broken down by the various other microbes that are pre present in the bowel even prior to leaving. And after leaving then, we uh, have enough nitrogenous product normally in it or uh, as the result of bacteria acting upon it that, that then can act as fertilizer. And um, basically all of the recipes for the Mars space stations involve uh, vegetarian recipes made from um, uh, foods that will be grown uh, using recycled human waste. Wow! And there you have it, full circle. And remember that carbon atom that went along for the ride as a fructose molecule? It too 
continues its journey. The other part of the cycle is that little carbon atom. Well, that carbon atom uh, went along as a fructose molecule and maybe modified into glycogen or something like that. And the liver eventually released it into the blood and it went around until it found a place to be useful and uh, got turned into carbon dioxide as it released its energy by being uh, oxidized. Then it gets back into the circulatory system, which is just like the major highway system, goes back this time to the lungs, crosses the membranes in the lungs into the wide open air that's being breathed in and out by the person, gets exhaled out into space, and lo and behold comes across another carrot someday and the cycle continues. That was family physician Dr. John Hughes in Montreal. I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to The Bottom Line on CBC Radio 1. I'm Preston Manning, and the environment is important to me because uh, it's important in its own right, and it's also vitally important to the operation of the economy. And uh, if our economic calculations include the ecological goods and services provided to us by nature and the costs of mitigating the negative environmental effects of uh, economic activity, that's the bottom line for me. Novelist and poet Margaret Atwood draws inspiration for her work from the subject of death. Let me ask you this, David. Are you going to do natural burial? Oh, I'm going to be cremated. Why is that? I don't know. I just thought that that was a simple way out. Uh, Big carbon footprint. Yeah, I know that. And I've talked to the crematoria mm-hmm. about how the hell to recover all this heat. There's got to be Oh, heat no, exchangers. that's an idea. So they're going to set up a crematorium with heat sharing. With heat or, exchangers. Yes. And reuse that heat in yes. some way. But I love the idea of just being cast out on the wind, and my father and mother were done that way, mm-hmm. and returned back to nature. Because, of course, our atoms don't disappear. We're still there. Yes. And just get redistributed. In Sweden, I know they f- they freeze-dry you. They have a new technique, yes. They freeze-dry you and then jiggle you. And then shake you. you by the heels yeah. till you pulverize into powder, and yeah. then that's uh, but, but how? But how energy-consumptive is that? It must be. What are you going to do? Uh, well, if they get approval... This is the problem. Nobody actually wants their potato field to be grown. <laughs> and I think there's some government permits that you have to get. But if, if, it's, if it exists by that time, I would certainly do the natural burial. Anyway, I think we should put some grave goods in for future anthropologists to dig <laughs> up. Don't you think that Give would be good? Give them something to do. Yeah, some mysterious <laughs> items that they will try to they figure can write out. Reams of theses yeah. and... Uh, they will try to figure out our culture. <laughs> I might get buried with a toy xylophone or something like that, and they'll think, what was this ritual item? Yeah. My toaster. I'll get buried with my toaster. <laughs> You'll hear more of my conversation with Margaret Atwood next week on The Bottom Line. The great burden of human consciousness is our awareness that we will die. Death is the great leveler. 
Of course, we have the conceit of hoping to live beyond our physical death, whether through the great works we do in architecture, literature, or art that will survive after us. Of course, there are wonderful dreams of paradise or heaven or even hell where we go on forever. But now there are those who promote the notion that science will give us the heretofore unachievable dream of immortality. I don't believe it for a minute. Impressive as scientific advances have been in this century, the notion that we are so clever we will be able to overcome the fundamental role that death plays in our lives is unbelievable hubris. Without death, there can be no evolution, no change as conditions within the biosphere are altered. Besides, even if we were able to live hundreds of years longer, wouldn't it be an incredible bore? I mean, surely our challenge is not to prolong life in a world in which the aged have no role or dignity. Finally, when we die, the atoms that we are composed of don't disappear. They're just dispersed and spread throughout the biosphere. We emerged from nature, and we go back to it when we die. What better fate could there be than that? This episode originally aired in 2010 and was produced by Nikola Lukšić in collaboration with Tina Pitaway. Additional production by Holly Dressel, Pete Mori, Greg Fleet, and David Barron. Suzuki's Survival Guide was produced with help from Sean Foley. Lisa Ayuso is our web producer. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.